great you're here for our, our, time, our midweek Bible study tonight, uh, whether you're here in person or online. If you are joining us online, please be sure to register your attendance on the Watch Live page. Uh, we'd like to have a record of that to know that you've been joining us. Um, we do have a few uh, announcements and prayer requests. I, I'm going to start with the announcements tonight. We want to remind everyone that our next Go and Do event will be on April 23rd. But we need some help in getting this event ready. This is a, an outreach event. This particular month is going to be an outreach event for our friends and our neighbors who are not members here at the Buford Congregation. In other words, we're trying to serve members of our community that we have close contact with. If you know someone who is not a member and could use help with spring cleaning, yard work, moving items, just general help around their house, then you can submit their name on the uh, on our website, you go to the website, there's a big link on the front page for this Go and Do event, and you can submit their information let us know that they need help with something, and, and it will be uh, uh, put into consideration for, for doing on April 23rd. We also need plenty of people to volunteer to help on that day with whatever projects we do uh, have come to, come to pass. And if you have any questions, you can see Ben Collins or Ben Hogan, either one. But please keep April 23rd, that Go and Do event, on your calendar to both participate and to help us find some, some people that we can help and, and, and be a benefit to this time of year. Also, on April 23rd, that afternoon, after the Go and Do event from 6.30 to 9 p.m., the Eagles Fellowship Group will have a game night at the home of Richard and Amy Smith. You're instructed to bring your favorite game and finger foods to share. And the men, are, the men of the congregation are encouraged to sign up and participate in the upcoming uh, uh, outing that they have on April 30th, Saturday, April 30th. There are details and a sign-up sheet at the Involvement Center. If you have any questions, you can talk to Scott Sitton or Micah Lardy. But there's a, a, a day trip that they've got planned for the men of the congregation. So if you'd like to be a part of that, check it out Sign up at the Involvement Center. Uh, those, are, those are the announcements we have. Uh, da, da, uh, please, keep, uh, the, um, please remember that we have some uh, families and, and young people participating in the Last Leaders Convention this weekend. They'll be down in Atlanta uh, Friday and Saturday participating in Last Leaders events down there. Keep them in your prayers, but, but also be, be aware of their participation in that. Uh, as far as health updates... John Iverson was scheduled to have knee replacement surgery today. I do not have any additional information on how that's gone for him at this time. Does anybody, has anybody heard? Okay. We'll keep Brother Iverson in your prayers uh, for his uh, recovery. Grace Lavender had hip replacement and reconstructive surgery on Monday. All went well, and she is at home recovering, and, and we need to keep her in our prayers as she continues to recover with that. Okay. And then one other one, um, Edna Bradshaw, uh, I was just informed, was diagnosed, I think, with diverticulitis tonight. I hope that's correct, because me and Sophie were trying to make sure we had the right term. Uh, but uh, she's, she's uh, at home, but uh, keep her in your prayers as, as she's being treated for that. And if we got that wrong, I blame somebody else completely. I don't know who, but I blame somebody else. But um, please keep Edna in your prayers as well. Uh, those are all the prayer requests and, and announcements that I was given for tonight. So if you would, let's go to God in prayer as we get started. Our Heavenly Father, we are honored to be together tonight. Honored to have this opportunity to encourage one another. Honored to have this opportunity to study your word. And may our efforts tonight uh, to do both those things be a blessing and, and be fruitful. Lord, we have a lot of activities going on. Uh, we have uh, several young people participating in the last Leaders' Convention this weekend. It, it is our prayer that you will uh, bless them as they uh, share their talents and, and seek to grow their abilities to serve in your kingdom. And, and may they be successful in that endeavor. May you, may you bless them with courage and with uh, recollection of the things they, that they've been working on and, and, and with uh, uh, a strong presentation of those things, and, and may you bless this program so that it continues, um, so that it grows and it becomes, uh, it continues to be a great asset to the training of our young people. Lord, we are mindful of our Go and Do event that is coming up and, and this continuous effort to reach out to our community, and we ask for your blessings on it as, as we're making preparations for it. 
and, and we pray that uh, it will be a, a continued success. Lord, we are mindful of fellowship groups that are meeting and, and, and uh, different ministries going on. Lord, Lord, help everything we do to bring glory to you and to be uh, beneficial to your kingdom. Tonight, Lord, we also want to give special attention to those individuals who uh, have had uh, recent procedures. We're mindful of Brother Iverson as he's recovering from uh, knee replacement surgery. It is our prayer that everything has gone well there and that he will have a successful uh, rehabilitation process and, and, and may there be no complications throughout that. We are especially mindful of Grace uh, Lavender as she has had this uh, major surgery with her hip and we pray, Lord, that her recovery goes well and she too faces no complications. We know that she's been through a lot and and it is our prayer that uh, her pain can be alleviated by this and that she can continue to improve. Lord, we, we also are mindful of, of Skip Jackson as, as he's in, uh, in rehab. We're mindful of B. Broom as she is as well. And we ask for your blessings on them. And Lord, we've got a number who are being treated for illness. We're mindful of Brother Hallbrook, Brother Elliot, and, and, and others who are being treated at this time. And, and I'm certain I'm missing uh, or not mentioning people that I should be. But Lord, we, we, we have loved ones here that are continuing to undergo treatment and uh, continuing to await test results and continuing to um, seek medical attention for various things. Uh, and Lord, Miss Helen Hamrick uh, came forward this past Sunday with a request uh, regarding some health issues that she was facing as well as some uh, uh, other uh, spiritual issues that she brought forward. And we ask for you to be with her and bless her and, and, and uh, provide for whatever she needs at this time. Lord, there are so many. And we lift them up to you tonight, even the unspoken ones, asking for you uh, to, to give special attention to, to their needs at this time. Lord, as we turn our attention to the life of your Son, help us to appreciate what he has done for us more than ever. And help us, Lord, to uh, emulate him better than ever. Thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, your sacrifice. May we never take it for granted. And it is through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. All right, we are going to continue our focus tonight. Sorry, my remote was doing something strange. We are going to continue our focus tonight on the Last Supper. Last week, we read through this uh, kind of corroborating mesh of all four Gospels. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of that again tonight just to catch us up on where we're at. But, but following that reading, we focused on two, as two events that happened in conjunction with the Last Supper. First, the preparations that went into making the arrangements for where they would uh, uh, meet and observe the Passover. And then we also focused on the foot washing. Jesus washing the disciples' feet, which was a significant event early in the, that evening with that particular meal. Tonight we're going to try to cover the three other major events that happen in the course of the Last Supper. The first of those being the institution of the Lord's Supper, uh, the second of those being the identification of the betrayer, and the third being uh, the uh, revealing of, or the, the announcement of Peter's betrayal. So we're going to try to cover all three of those tonight so that next week we can transition into another event. But I do want to point something out. I do want to point something out that this week, on Friday night, do you know what Friday is going to be observed as? Okay, that's great. You went from a Christian perspective. Let's go from a Jewish perspective. What, what, what event happens on Friday according to, what was that? Passover. Which means that this coming Sunday is the Sunday associated with what? Eh. <laughs> The resurrection. Now, I will always, I always try to refer to it as Resurrection Sunday because the, the term Easter is completely secular, completely pagan, completely out of place. Resurrection Sunday, this is the Sunday associated because of Passover with the Sunday that Jesus rose. And so what that means is that this week that we're currently in the middle of is often referred to as Holy Week because it's the week that the events of the last week of Jesus' life occurred. And so the association would be, in the context of our timetable that we've been using, uh, would be that this past Sunday, 
uh, would have been called Palm Sunday. It would have been the Sunday associated with the triumphal entry according to the traditional view in particular of the timeline of the last week. And, and then um, uh, Monday would have been associated with the cleansing of the temple and so on. And so actually, according to the traditional timeline of a chronology of Jesus' last week, the events we're talking about right now with the Last Supper would be occurring tomorrow night. So just to give you some context that we're, we're, we're in the season at least, maybe not, probably not the exact same week, Don't because uh, if you ever pay attention to Passover and Resurrection Sunday, they bounce around every year. They can be anywhere from uh, March to April because Passover is actually based on moon cycles. Um, and so we, we don't know the exact month and day these events happen. We just know that they're in conjunction with the Passover, and it's currently that time of year according to the, the Jewish observance of holidays or holy days. Uh, with that being said, we're going to turn our attention to the reading. I'm going to skip a few, uh, a couple of slides here and get us to the point that we haven't studied yet. So what, we're going to start reading here, and if you weren't with us, what I have done is I've taken all four Gospels and in my own way have meshed them together to make one cohesive reading and you can see that the blue font, which the blue font uses Matthew's gospel, the green font uses Mark's gospel, the white font uses Luke's gospel, and the yellow font uses John's gospel. And the verse numbers uh, will, that, will, that appear before each, each, each line represent a verse from that particular gospel and its chapter. Um, I'm going to start with the blue reading where it says 26. That's where we're going to start reading tonight, and this will cover the last three events associated with the, past, the Last Supper, at least. So if you'll read along with me. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, the blue is really hard to read back there. He gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my body. No, so th for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. <laughs> and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is with me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel." Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another." 
Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. That is, that is a, a, the summation of the, the last events that uh, unfold. And granted, there are probably some other passages in these Gospels I could have included. But these are the ones I want to focus on this evening. Now, again, uh, let me skip these slides that show our timeline. Uh, just be aware that according to the traditional model of the chronology, we're saying that uh, the events of the Last Supper would have occurred on Thursday evening going into... Friday morning. Um, and that brings us to the, the third big thing that happens in the course of the evening, and that is the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, first thing we need to do is we need to re be reminded about the history of Passover. This is one of the more significant holy days in, in, in the, in the uh, Israelite Jewish faith. Because the Lord's Supper descends from the Passover meal. You may notice in Matthew 26 and in Mark 12 and in Luke 22, actually it should be Mark 14, that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper during his final observance of the Jewish Passover with his disciples. Now the Jews annually observed this, this meal, this commemorative meal, and, and their annual observance of it provides some theological background for our, our understanding of this meal that we commemorate every week. So the Passover meal is first mentioned in Exodus chapter 12. It's there that the Israelites, who at that time were enslaved in Egypt, were instructed to obtain a lamb without blemish for each household, and at twilight on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, they were to kill that lamb. Then they were to cook the lamb for dinner that evening and use its blood to paint the doorframe of their house. During the course of that particular night, God said that he would pass through the land of Egypt and strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. The only way to avoid this death was for your house to be covered by the blood of a lamb. And those that obeyed God's instructions regarding the Passover experienced salvation that night because the Lord's actions brought out the release of the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. Now, that help, that's the understanding of what takes place, or, or the event that pa the Passover meal commemorates every year. I've never participated in a Passover celebration. I've always thought that I would appreciate um, witnessing what takes place in the course of that meal. Uh, when we lived in our first house, my, my neighbors uh, were, were Jewish, and I, I would, every December, they'd have the menorah in the window and things like that, and I, and I often thought, maybe I should ask them if I could just observe the Passover and see what takes place at this significant event. It, I thought it would give me a greater appreciation of uh, the Lord's Supper, even. I never did. I never had the courage to do that. I thought I might be offensive to ask or being a Gentile, I might not be welcome. I don't know. But I, I've always wished I could observe the, this uh, significant event. But here's what I understand takes place during the Passover. Uh, in fact, it appears that by the first century, there was a, a very specific order of, of service, kind of like we tend to have when, in worship or we tend to have at a, a wedding or a funeral. You have a very particular order. And there's an there's a initial blessing that's offered, and then there's the, a cup of wine that's served. Now, there's four cups of wine served during this meal. Now, don't think this is a party to get drunk at. The, these cups of wine were two parts wine, three parts water, so they were quite diluted. And you would have four different times during the Passover meal that you would take a drink from that cup. And each one represented a different promise that God had given in Exodus chapter 6. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Exodus 6 very quickly. I don't have this on the screen or anything, but it's Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And every time they were to drink this diluted wine, 
it was to commemorate one of four promises in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. The first promise is in verse 6, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's God's first promise to the Israelites. His second promise is, I will deliver you from slavery. His third promise is, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And the fourth promise is, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And so in the course of the Passover meal, what, when, they take this, when they drink this diluted wine, what they're doing is they're commemorating the promise that God had made prior to the Exodus. The four different promises that are, appear there. After that first cup of wine is drunk, it's followed by eating a portion of bitter herbs and unleavened bread. Now, bitter herbs were a major part of the Passover meal that we don't talk about because it didn't necessarily translate into the Lord's Supper. But they had bitter herbs because they were rem- the, the herbs, the bitter herbs, were a reminder of the bitterness of slavery, about how horrible the conditions are. They, they consumed these bitter herbs to be reminded of their past, which was bitter. And then after they eat the bitter herbs, there would be a second drink of wine. And during this, or after the drinking of this second cup, they would commemorate what, they would um, fulfill the obligation of Exodus chapter 12 and verse 26. If you turn to Exodus chapter 12, that's the institution of the Passover in the land of Egypt. And in verse 26, we're told that a son would ask his father the meaning of the Passover feast. And when, Exodus chapter 12, verse 26, When your child says to you, What do you mean by this service? What do you mean by this Passover service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our, spared our houses. And so if you had a family with children, you would have a child ask, about what Passover means. And then the head of the household would explain what it meant. In fact, if you jump one more chapter over, Exodus chapter 13, verse 8, um, you would particularly have a son ask this question because of Exodus 13, verse 8, where it says, You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And so the father, as he's explaining what this meal represents, is supposed to speak as if he experienced it, as if he was there, as if he was one of those exiting Egypt at the time. And after this second cup of diluted wine is drunk, you have this process of asking and telling about the events of Passover. Once that part of kind of the educational portion of the meal is done, they then sing a, the first portion of the Hayel. Now, we made reference to this during our study of Psalms on Sunday nights in the Ministers of the Roundtable. The Hayel is the section of Psalms from Psalm 113 through Psalm uh, 118, I believe. And it's a bunch of praise psalms. They're beautiful. And Psalm 113 and 114 are sung after this second cup of wine. And then a third cup of wine is poured. And after the third cup of wine, that's when you finally eat the lamb and the unleavened bread. That lamb that that reminded the Jews that God had spared the lives of the firstborn Israelites because of the sacrifice of the lamb. That unleavened bread was eaten because it was a reminder of how the Israelites had to leave Egypt in haste when God delivered them. That evening, they were not to use leaven in their bread so that they they could eat and exit quicker. And so it's after that third cup of wine that they finally eat the the emblems that we are familiar with, the lamb and and the unleavened bread. And this is then followed by a fourth cup of wine, after which they sing the remainder of the Hayel, which would be Psalm chapter 115 through 118. And so in the course of this evening, as they observe the Passover, they're going to uh, follow the strict guidelines of different events that, that, that have been meticulously planned out over the years. Drinking the diluted wine at certain points, eating the herbs at a certain point, eating the, the lamb and the unleavened bread at a certain point, having questions and answers provided at certain points, 
and then singing at certain points. And you can see some of this unfold during the course of uh, the account in the Gospels. For instance, you'll notice at the very end of the institution of the Lord's Supper, in, in at least one Gospel, which I didn't have um, added up here, at least one of the Gospels were told that before they went out to the Mount of Olives, they sung a hymn. They were probably singing the final, final uh, three halyels. And that's the, because that's the final part of the, the Passover order. So you can see these unfold, and here's what's interesting. When we play the institution of the Lord's Supper, most scholars believe it happened after the third cup of wine, that the institution of the Lord's Supper coincided with the, after eating that uh, lamb, when, when, Jesus, when it was time to eat the unleavened bread and then drink the fourth cup of wine. That's the part that is typically associated with the institution of the Lord's Supper. And here's the thing, that's pretty significant to understand um, the importance of the Passover in conjunction with the institution of the Lord's Supper because every year the Jewish people are commemorating this, this significant salvific event in the life of their people by eating this meal over and over again every year. And when Jesus gathered with his disciples in that upper room just hours before he was arrested to eat that very meal, that historical event of the Passover was weighing on their minds. And so when Jesus gave them the unleavened bread and said, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. And when Jesus gave them that cup and said, this, is the cup, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this in remembrance of me. He was utilizing the events of the Passover to frame our understanding of what he has done for us. He is the lamb that was slain so that we don't have to face death, spiritually speaking. It's why Jesus is called by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11, our Passover lamb. It's through the death of Jesus that we've been rescued from the bondage of sin and the wrath of God because like the Passover lamb, Jesus' blood covers us. So we need to appreciate the Passover meal so that we understand the significance of the Lord's Supper all the more. Because it is in the context of the Passover meal that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And I also want to point out that in the course of reading about this institution, you can come to understand the different terminologies that are used in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. Typically, we refer to the, the participation in, uh, of eating these emblems as the Lord's Supper, but there are other terms that are used in Scripture, and I want to point them out in the context of what's unfolding here. In a couple of passages, the Lord's Supper is referred to as the breaking of bread. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 and Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 are, are the two particular verses that use it. Acts 2.42 says uh, that the early church devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, among other things. And Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, we're told that Paul met with the believers in Troas on the first day of the week when they came together to break bread. And so the terminology of, of breaking of bread was one of the ways they referred to the Lord's Supper. Now, it was kind of a confusing terminology because it was also used to refer to sitting down and having a meal together. And so you have to look at context to understand when, when it's referring to the Lord's Supper or when it's referring to just a, a general common meal. But this is one of the terminologies that appeared in Scripture in reference to the Lord's Supper. It's not used much beyond that, though. It kind of, from my vantage point, it kind of became terminology that died off. Uh, another terminology that did get used in Scripture is the term communion. Uh, this title for the Lord's Supper derived from the Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship or communion or participation, and it appears in conjunction with the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. Now you'll only, of the major translations that get used here, the New King James Version is the one that preserves the communion terminology. I think the King James does as well. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16 says, and verse 17, I should say it's both verses, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Now the ESV and NIV will use the term participation instead of communion. The New American Standard Version uses the term sharing instead of 
of communion. But the idea here is that in using this koinonia terminology in conjunction with the Lord's Supper is that we need to recognize that, that there's a unity about participating in this, this, memorial, this meal. There's an idea, there's an aspect in which the Lord's Supper is a unifying event for us, that we all come together uh, around this table uh, with these emblems and we participate jointly in, in celebrating what Christ has done for us. And that term celebrating is not, should not be offensive because in some denominations, the Lord's Supper is referred to as the Eucharist. Now, before you get ready to stone me, because I know some of you are picking up those psalm books to throw right now, Eucharist is not technically a biblical term in the sense of there's not a point in the Bible where it says, hey, this is a synonym for the Lord's Supper. What you do need to know is that there is a Greek verb, eucharisteo, from which Eucharist was transliterated. Eucharisteo, the Greek verb, means to give thanks, and it is the, it is the verb that appears in all four accounts of the institution of the Lord's Supper. In Mark, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 27 says that Jesus took the cup and gave thanks, Eucharisteo, and gave it to them. Mark chapter 14 verse 23, Jesus took the cup and when he had given thanks, Eucharisteo, he gave it to them. Luke chapter 22 verse 17, then he took the cup and gave thanks. Verse 19, he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 24, when he had given thanks, Eucharisteo. My point is this. The terminology uh, Eucharisteo, the Greek term, appears in all four accounts of the institution of the Lord's Supper. But nowhere does the Bible say the Lord's Supper can also, is also the Eucharist. It was just terminology adopted in the earliest days of the church. In fact, during the, first, um, during this, the second and third centuries, Eucharist was the most common term used in association with the Lord's Supper. According to... Um, Everett Ferguson, who is the leading expert on early church history and is a member of the Churches of Christ. Now, I'm not advocating for the use of this terminology because the term Eucharist has some other connotations now due to its use in certain denominations, particularly in the Catholic Church where it's also associated with a false doctrine known as transubstantiation. So, it's not a term we need to be utilizing, but I mention it. I mention it for one reason only. That in every occasion of the retelling of the institution of the Lord's Supper, there's terminology about giving thanks. Which means that when it comes to our observance of the Lord's Supper, it should be a time of thanksgiving as much as it is a time of sorrowful remembrance. How you have both is interesting. But there was an element of thanksgiving involved in the observance of the initial Lord's Supper, in the institution of it. And so I think it's worth mentioning that. And I've already referenced this idea of, of, uh, of, of remembering uh, that the, the idea of the Lord's Supper being a memorial, something that causes you to remember, because that is also part of a term that gets used to some degree, or an idea at least, that's associated with the uh, Lord's Supper. Because if you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, what does Jesus instruct them to do when he broke the bread, when he gave them the cup? He instructed them to do this in remembrance of me, which is typically the phrase you'll see inscribed on every table that, on which the Lord's Supper is set. And the idea is that, that this is a memorial. This is intended to be something that causes us to remember what happened. And so you'll see this terminology, this reference at least, to the Lord's Supper as a memorial. Not so much specifically said in Scripture, but the idea is part of how we understand this observance, this meal. So I, I share with you those four terms that get associated with the Lord's Supper so we can see how they all, play, how they all derive from the events at the institution of this meal. And so that they can all have an impact on, on how we observe how we participate in this meal. We, we need to recognize the unity that is expected of it because it's referred to as koinonia or communion. We need to recognize the thanksgiving with which it is associated with it. 
because uh, Jesus gave thanks when he broke the bread, when he gave the cup, and we need to recognize that it is a memorial. It is something in which we're to do in the remembrance of Jesus. So I, I share that with you just because they all appear in the events that unfold. Let's move on now to another big event that happens, and that is the identification of the betrayer. Now, one thing I find very fascinating is at what point in the Passover observance does this happen? Matthew and Mark place the identification of Judas chronologically in their Gospels. They place it prior to the institution of the Lord's Supper. Luke places it after. John doesn't record the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's kind of assumed in his Gospel, so he doesn't really help us out. But there is one thing that does happen in the identification process that may give us a little bit of information. It seems that in John's gospel, as well as Matthew and Mark's gospel, there's a reference to um, the dipping of bread or the dipping of something. When Jesus says, hey, this is how you'll know who, know who it is, he'll dip, I'll, I'll dip this in John's gospel, he dips a morsel and, and gives it to him. Or in Matthew and Mark's gospel, it's he who is dipping in the bowl with me. The dipping process or the, the dipping happened typically after that second cup of wine when they were eating the bitter herbs. And so the implication of that identification statement lends itself to the possibility that very early in the, the Passover observance that the identification process happens. However, we must concede that that's the formal process of Passover meal. Who's to say that after they've eaten the lamb and after they've eaten the unleavened bread and they've done all that and they're sitting around this table with leftovers that Jesus doesn't just do some dipping? I mean, how many of you go to a Mexican restaurant and even after you've eaten, you're still getting chips and salsa and going at it? You know, it's, it's, there's nothing to say that Jesus couldn't have dipped later on and it not be in, in the immediate process of or the immediate formula of the evening. So we don't know if this happened before or after the institution of the Lord's Supper, but what we do know is it happened during the Passover meal. And that's pretty significant in and of itself. This is such a special time. This is such an intimate time. This is such a holy time. Sacred time would be better terminology there. Sacred time. And this is unfolding this identification of who's going to betray Jesus, this entering of Satan into the heart of, of, of uh, Judas, all of this happening at such a special moment. And, and, and this is just this is a, a, a Sabbath observance. So let's not forget that. Wouldn't what Judas does after the fact constitute work? There's just so much going on here. And they're sharing a meal. Do you share meals with your enemies very often? Do you, do, do you sit down for an intimate setting and, and, and to enjoy each other's company with the people you don't like, if you can help it? Meals usually are times when you're, when you're with somebody uh, that you have close relationship with, when you're with your friends or your family. There is intimacy, particularly around gathering for the Passover. When you celebrate Thanksgiving, and don't get me wrong here, I'm not saying Thanksgiving and Passover are on the same playing field, but when you celebrate Thanksgiving, do you get together with the people you least like, or do you try to be around people, well, I mean, most of you are with family, so it's possible, but you don't usually try to get together with people you don't want to be around. You usually are with people you do want to be around. And to know that in this intimate setting, in this special occasion, this sacred moment, Jesus is sitting at a table with the person who is going to sell him. And what's so very interesting is we know who was on Jesus' right side at the table. We know it was the disciple whom he loved, based on the fact that since they're reclining on their left-hand sides, and when the disciple whom Jesus loved had to ask him who was betraying, who the betrayer was, he had to lean back into Jesus' chest because Jesus was behind him. He's on Jesus' right side, 
So he has to lean backwards into the bosom of Jesus to ask that question. We know who's on the right side, and we know Peter's not on the left side because Peter had to summon the disciple on Jesus' right side to ask the question, so he seems to be a little bit further away from Jesus. And it's interesting that Jesus is able to dip bread and directly hand it to Judas. It's possible that Judas is even on Jesus' left side, right next to him. Now think about the intimacy of that with a betrayer, if that is, quite, if that is the possibility. This is the wrong time, but it's the right time as well. It's the wrong time in the sense of, this is special, this is sacred. Nobody should be doing anything like what Judas is about to do on this evening during this meal. But it's the right time because Jesus is the Passover lamb. So, the interesting thing to me is this. When it's announced that there's a betrayer in their midst, when Jesus speaks to that at the dinner table, everybody's surprised. But they shouldn't be surprised. Jesus has already said this. If you scan in your Bibles back to Matthew chapter 20, it's in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 and 19. They haven't even gotten to Jerusalem yet. Matthew chapter 20. No, wait, they may have. They may have already had the triumphal entry. I've got my chapters all mixed up in my head. But Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 through 19, as Jesus was going to, up to Jerusalem, I saved myself there. They haven't even gotten to Jerusalem yet. As they were going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the last day. Hold on, I skipped something there. I think that delivered over terminology in the ESV of verse 18, I want to think in some other translations it's betrayed. And that's why I reference this passage. Jesus had let them know, also John chapter 6, verse 70 and 71. After the feeding of the 5,000 in John's gospel, Jesus said, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He's already making reference to the fact that someone is going to do something to him. They had subtle um, references to this possibility before they ever got to that table. But it's still a surprise to them. They were... As one author said, the twelve were already somewhat disoriented by Jesus' allusions to his suffering and death, categories they still could not square with their conviction that he was the promised Messiah. So doubtless references to betrayal and treachery seem similarly obscure. Perhaps, this author goes on to say, perhaps some wondered if Jesus were referring to disciples outside the ring of the twelve. Others might have wondered if betrayal would be inadvertent accidental. Perhaps the notion of betrayal did not seem very threatening to them since their master could calm storms, raise the dead, feed the hungry, heal the sick. What possible disaster could befall him that he could not rectify? So there may be some reason why they're surprised. But their surprise still seems to have ignored some of the things Jesus said. Kurt. Yeah. Yeah. You sound like the Gospel of Thomas. Oh, no, not Thomas. The Gospel of Judas. You ever read that? The Gospel of Judas. Um, 
presents Judas as the most intimate disciple of Jesus and that Jesus ordered him to do this because it was the only way it would happen and that Judas did this at the command of Jesus. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding with you. It's, no, I, I know you don't. I'm kidding with you that you sound like that. It's just, it, it's interesting. It is possible that, that maybe Judas, uh, one thing we, I did talk about uh, several weeks back is the name Iscariot has the possibility of referring to a, a political leaning of his. It could be a reference to him being an assassin, actually, uh, kind of in the form of Simon the Zealot, but, not, but a little bit more aggressive than Simon the Zealot. Um, and so there are prob- possibly some deep political leanings on, on Judas's part that could have driven him. I do think John has some uh, other motivations on his, but, but Judas, whether he is disillusioned with Jesus or if he's trying to spur Jesus into action, we'll never know his motives. Never know his motives. We do know that his grief was more than he could bear, but I don't know, I don't know if his hanging is indicative of uh, the, his his innocent intent because you have Peter declaring I'm never going to deny you innocent intent never going to deny you does it but Peter doesn't hang himself Peter overcomes his grief and Peter has this beautiful restoration moment with Jesus that that Judas could have had too but anyway Great fun um, to speculate to some degree what's going on in Judas's mind. I will always wonder what motivated Judas to get there. It, was it just the money thing? Was it just that whole when he, when uh, Jesus's feet were anointed back in John chapter twelve, and he's upset that the money didn't get into his money bag for him to take from? Is it just that, or is there more to it? Um, but the crazy thing here is all the disciples are surprised that there's going to be a betrayer. And then every one of them wonders if it could be them. That fascinates me. If I'm there among them, if, 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 I'm, the, if I'm John and I'm reclining next to Jesus, the, I, don't you think John would have had confidence that it wouldn't be him and wouldn't feel the need to ask, is it I? That tells me that they're afraid of the possibility of this being accidental or something like that inadvertent uh, betrayal of some sort. Am I, is Peter sitting there thinking, Lord, am I going to do something wrong that causes this? Who knows? But they don't think. They, don't, they not once, not one of them goes, oh, Lord, is it Judas? It's Judas, right? It's got to be Judas. Not one of them is suspicious of Judas. You know what else is surprising to me? Is that Jesus pinpoints who it is. And not one of them catches it. So, if you look at Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 14 and verse 20, when asked who would betray him, Jesus said, it is, the one, it is one of the twelve who is one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, oftentimes we reference that and think, oh, that means that him and Judas were simultaneously dipping uh, bread into whatever vessel is there. That may just be a statement of Jesus saying, Hey, it's one of you at this table because we're all dipping bread together. It, that may not be a direct indicator of who it is. Could be, but may not be. But then you get to Matthew's account, and we find out that everybody's asking, Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Judas asked Jesus if he was the betrayer in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 25, and Jesus' answer was, You have said so. In other words, it was an affirmative. But nobody... According to the accounts, nobody goes, oh, guys, it's Judas. Get him. You know, no, nobody reacts to it. My guess is, my suspicion is that this was an aside conversation, one that the rest of the apostles didn't hear. Can you imagine what Peter would do if Peter heard that Judas was the betrayer? I don't think that would have gone over too smoothly. 
if Peter's willing to chop off the ear of some guy out in the garden, what is he willing to do to someone who's in the inner circle? Then you have John's gospel, John chapter 13. According to John's account, the beloved disciple who we believe is John asked Jesus to identify the betrayer in verse 26. And Jesus responded, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And then Jesus gives the bread to Judas and tells Judas, Go do what you got to do. So there was a specific tip. This is who it will be who I this did bread to. So how is it that John or any other apostle, I mean, remember, Peter asked John to find out the aunt, who it is. So I'm sure after hearing that from Jesus, John's like, hey, Peter, it's who he gives the bread to. You know, something like that. How do they miss it? One second, Brother Stan. Here's the thing. Just because Jesus says it's whoever I give this morsel of bread to doesn't mean he gives that bread right then. What if Jesus holds on to that bread for a while and they keep conversing and when John's not looking, hands it off? I don't think Jesus would be intentionally deceptive. But what if, as the night wears on, John forgets to be staring at the hand of Jesus the whole time and suddenly Jesus hands off the bread when John is not thinking? Who knows how this plays out? There's any number of ways in which this failure to catch the clues could happen. Brother Stan. Yeah. Absolutely. It, same. I mean, you can go back to the wedding at Cana and excuse me, and see how there are times that they don't perceive what's going on until after the fact. So that's a great observation because John, who, in writing this gospel, gives us these little moments of a little uh, narrative asides, which say, uh, which explain that after all this unfolded. They finally understood what, what was happening. So I, I think they just, Jesus gave the clues in various ways, and maybe they weren't uh, as public as the Gospels, as we read into the Gospels. Or, or maybe they didn't happen in the chronology that we perceive from the Gospels. Or maybe they didn't happen as quickly as we perceive they happened in the Gospels. Any number of things could be the case. I am certain that in that moment, Jesus was providing the identification, as Brother Stan's referring to, so that the apostles would understand after the fact. When they can't find Judas, three days later when they can't find Judas, they're going to start having a lot of questions. But then they're going to start thinking back to that dinner. And things are going to add up. I think Jesus did intentionally veil some of the clues enough to prevent them from hindering the events that were going to unfold that night, because those events had to unfold. And so we need to, we need to chalk all this up to divine providence, that God is in control, that this had to play out a certain way to fulfill Scripture and to accomplish what our souls needed. And so it's, it's interesting how all these guys wondered if they could be the one how all these guys missed the clues Jesus gave regarding John. And how in the aftermath of all this, they all pledged their fidelity. Mark chapter uh, 14, verse 27 through 31, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. Now think about that. He said, one of you is going to betray me. And they're all like, oh, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? And then by the end of the night, he's saying, doesn't matter because you're all going to fall away. All of you is going to do me wrong tonight. You will all fall away, Mark 14, verse 27, 
And then he quotes from Zechariah's gospel, uh, Zechariah's gospel, Zechariah's book. And he says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Peter's not the only one who had a bold proclamation. And I know our time is up, but that leads into uh, Jesus prophesying Peter's denial. You see this uh, in, in all the Gospels, but, but in particular, I think it is um, Luke's Gospel that stands out. Because Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, Jesus responded to Peter's claim of unwavering fidelity with the saying, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And, and that's an interesting statement. It's interesting because the, the first you in that statement, Satan demanded to have you, is not singular. It's plural. Satan demanded to have all the apostles, not just Peter. So that he might sift them like wheat. Peter's the one that gets kind of blasted for the denial. It's the one that stood out. But when you look at the text of these events, it is very clear that every disciple fell away, as Jesus said. Jesus was abandoned by denial of Peter. He was abandoned by the indifference of Peter, James, and John in Gethsemane when they were unable to stay awake. He was abandoned by the fleeing of the rest of the twelve when the mob came into the garden to detain him. You see, everyone fell away that night. Everyone was sifted like wheat. And that terminology, that description, simply implies a time of testing. The whole concept is that, that the... That, that Satan has requested this opportunity to test the apostles. Here's the interesting thing as I spent time reading what, what's happening here. The allusions are always made to Job chapter one, and verse, chapter 1 and 2 with this whole sifting of wheat, this whole testing, how Satan asked permission to, or Satan spoke to, to God about testing Job. But there's also Amos chapter 9 and verse 9 that's worth mentioning. In Amos chapter 9, um, oh, let me find it in my notes, says, I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. The test will happen, but they're all going to be restored. They may not pass the test immediately, but they will pass it ultimately. Because when Jesus rises from the grave, he gathers this group back together, minus Judas Iscariot, obviously. And they launch the greatest campaign for a kingdom ever. It's just very interesting. Peter gets all the criticism because his story stands out. But every one of them fell that night. Every one of them fell away. Every one of them was essentially tested in some fashion. And every one of them came up empty to some degree. I've always pondered this about John, the beloved disciple. He's with Peter when they go to the Caiaphas' house for the trials. He gets to go inside the house because he's got some connection. Peter had to stay outside in the courtyard. John followed Jesus for a good portion of that night. But there's no indication he came to Jesus' defense at any point. Ever thought about that? That John is so close to the events as they're happening, but he does nothing to intervene that we know of. See, they all messed up. And guess what? If we were in their shoes, we would have messed up too. So we come to the conclusion of the Last Supper. There is more to the Last Supper, don't get me wrong. 
Because John chapter 13 leads into John chapter 14, which leads into John 15, 16, and 17. And all of those chapters are Jesus' final words to these disciples. Some of it may have happened as he walked with them to the, to the garden to pray, but we have a lot of beautiful teaching that happens in the course of that evening as well. I'm not going to spend our time on that anymore. We're going to transition to next week to talking about the events in the garden. Tonight we should gain appreciation for the fact that Jesus ate this meal all the while knowing that there was someone sitting across the table from him who would betray him, someone across the table from him who would deny him, and a bunch of people across the table who were going to desert him. Jesus washed their feet ate a meal with them, showed his love to them, despite what he knew would unfold. Our Lord is amazing. Let's have a quick word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for your Son. Knowing what he's going to be enduring in these last few chapters that we're studying, and, and, and knowing with what, what grace he handled all the events, and what grace he showed towards us, Lord, we are so thankful, and we're so indebted. Help us to not take for granted his sacrifice. And it is through his name we pray.